Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and this week, for a change of pace that I will probably regret in about five minutes, we're going live over the internet on blogtalkradio.com on this snow day for episode 101. And the Mets have done nothing in the last week, which should come as a surprise to no one. So in the, I hereby hereby declare this day to be snow day, the funnest day in the history of the podcast edition. We will take your calls live over the internet on Blog Talk Radio. We're only going to go for about an hour because I think the longer this goes, the more likely it will be a complete and utter disaster. I also have some emails. If worse comes to worse, to answer, this is a backup plan. We can call into the show at 347-850-8114. And we will talk about the Mets, hopefully, or at least mostly about the Mets at the risk of tramping on some uh, intellectual property out there. I'm snowed in in my apartment. I made myself a hot toddy. And since no one has called in yet, I can't really be too surprised about that. I don't even know if this is actually working because I can't see levels anywhere on the computer. We'll start the show off with an email. And it's about Jared King, because that feels like a good way to start off episode 101. It's from Tom. 
Hello, podcast. Congrats on the 100th or so episode. I have a question regarding Jared King. I was excited when he was drafted. Seemed like a good get for the fifth round. Everything is playing up to his draft profile except the power. Not that he was profiled as a big power guy, but hasn't slugged 400 yet. I looked up his numbers and tried to find a similar profile. I looked up Kirk Neuenheis. And while it's actually, if you're going to go with a comp, that's not an awful one. And while I thought they were pretty similar in most categories, two things stood out. Kirk put up a much put up much better power numbers at similar levels, and Kirk's K rate with north of 20% versus King's lack of power and less than 20% K rate. Not Plowecki low, but acceptable. My question is, since most of what I've read seems like a power profile versus lower K rate, is it time for me to cut bait on my hopes and dreams for King? We can't slug over 400 this season. Thanks. And Tom clarifies that his hopes and dreams are an everyday outfielder. So I was certainly big on the Jared King bandwagon shortly after he was drafted. I mean, as Tom mentioned, it was good value if you want to go off the Baseball America you know, pre-draft rankings. When I saw him in Brooklyn, I saw a guy who, yeah, the, the tweener skill set, you know, the not quite enough power for a corner, not quite enough glove for a center. Fielder was always kind of in there somewhere. That was probably the most likely outcome. Um, but it looked like a guy that, you know, profiled as a potential everyday outfielder. There's a lot to like there. Probably couldn't stick in center. Would be a good defensive left fielder. Switch hitter with a little bit of feel from both sides. Good approach. You know, the kind of guy the Mets front office likes to get in those rounds. Then I saw him this year in Savannah early in the season before he broke his leg. And he got thick. And not, I mean, some of it was good weight. Some of it wasn't. You know, the approach is still there, a little bit of gap power, but King's profile was dependent on him getting on base and being a good defensive left fielder. And I didn't see him in St. Lucie after he came back from the broken leg, and you got to kind of give him a pass for that. But he didn't make my uh, top 25 that's going to be aggregated at Amazing Avenue in the coming weeks. He didn't make our top 25, spoiler alert. Now he's still a college guy with some polish, a good approach. Um, you know, he's going to get opportunities, certainly. Now, I don't know if he's going to start in Binghamton this year. You would expect, again, polished college profile. It goes Brooklyn, Savannah, St. Lucie, Binghamton for, for you know, post-draft, full year one, full year two. That's the track. If you're going to be considered even, you know, a marginal, you know, role four or four-plus prospect, that's the route you want to take. You know, you don't really don't want him repeating St. Lucie this year. Now some of it will come down to where there's spots in the outfield, but I think, it, you know, if he goes to Binghamton, I'll see him early, obviously. Um, and I'll have more to say then. But it's going to be sort of a make-or-break year for him, even as sort of like a back-end, you know, I had him back-end top 20, I think, coming into the 2014 season. You know, for that kind of profile, and those guys more often than not end up fourth outfielders, which would still be a good outcome for King, certainly. But if he's going to get there, he's got to, he does have to show you something, and the power, I think, has to come. And, you know, St. Lucie in the summer, not an easy place to hit for power, as much as we talk about, you know, Savannah being absolutely death for left-handed power, which it certainly is. Um, you know, Binghamton's a little bit nicer. This is a college guy with a, and I know, Baseball America threw like the 280, 20 home run ceiling on him, and that's nice, but I don't know how realistic that is. Those guys don't really last till the fifth round or even really to the third round, which I think was closer to where he was projected to going. 
but it's a guy that could uh, contribute. It's a guy I'm looking forward to seeing. There's a lot of guys on that Binghamton roster I'm looking forward to seeing that probably no one else in the prospect pundit world is. But you know, I, I can't get away from my roots in in a lot of ways, and those sort of fringy prospects will always keep my attention, especially if I haven't seen them in a while. That's my spiel on Jared King. We still have 53 minutes to go. This is not looking good. Once again, the number to call in is 347-850-8114. This can be really funny when you're listening to this when it goes up as a normal podcast post and no one actually calls in. But that's the risk I take. Because I'm sitting here on my snow day with my hot toddy. I'll give you the recipe for that in a second. Because I'm very proud of it. And we're doing a podcast. I don't want to burn through all three of my emails quickly, so I'm trying to think of another discussion point so this doesn't go the way of our uh, pre-draft Google chat we had this year, this summer, until Alex called in. What I'll probably end up doing now is going on our internal mailing list. I know you often hear uh, typing on the podcast. Usually it's me looking up something on Baseball Reference. Uh Instead, I'm using it to go on the internal email list or a little internal communication list for Amazing Avenue and uh, tell somebody to call in so we can talk about something that's related before this completely spirals out of control. Or I take our next email, which I'm going to warn you right ahead of, ahead of time. The subject line is re-Dario Alvarez, but we have a call. And the great thing about this um Software. I have no information about who's calling other than a you know an area code, and I also have to figure out how to put them on air. But hello, you're live on Amazing Avenue Audio. Uh, who is this? You can use the standard WFAN uh, delineation if you prefer. Hey, uh, this is Greg from Manhattan. Oh, it's Greg Karam. <laughs> how you doing, Jeff? Uh, Long time okay. listener, uh, first time caller. You, good, you got my message, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I wanted to call in and you know, not leave you out to dry there. So uh, I had a question I wanted to call in and ask about. Uh, over Is it shortstop related? It's uh, shortstop related. It's also Sandy Alderson related. Uh, over the weekend, Sandy Alderson made a crack about uh, the Mets shortstop situation. And kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, I'm getting a little tired of uh, Sandy making all these jokes and laughing, you know, about the situation. It's, it's kind of, it's poking and prodding the fan base. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't I'm starting, it's starting to wear thin on me. What are, you, what are your thoughts? It's funny because if you had been, if we'd done a regular show this week with you as a co-host, the opening question would have been something like this, which we can do now, which is perfect. Um, so Sandy Alderson this weekend at the usual New York BB WAA dinner introduced Cal Ripken Jr. by saying that the fan base has been waiting for me to introduce a shortstop all offseason. So if Sandy Alderson could introduce any retired shortstop as the 2015 Mets shortstop, Greg, who would you pick? Uh, let's go. You want to Ray Ordonez? How about that? I was going to go with Ray Ordonez too. <laughs> There's really no other answer. <laughs> I mean, 40, 40, I'm going to guess 40 something year old Ray Ordonez at this point. I can look this up too. 
I'm sure he can still, uh, you know, still he can still pick it. it better than Wilmer Flores. Yeah, forty-four-year-old yeah. Wilmer Flores, uh, Ray Ordonez, <laughs> can probably pick it a short better than Wilmer Flores. Hey, Wilmer Flores killed it. Told about that age. He was playing first base at the end of his career. That just seems like bad roster management. <laughs> it was indeed, but uh, look, I'm gonna hang up and listen. Uh, you enjoy yourself over there, and uh, you know we'll be back next week. <laughs> So as to Greg's actual question, how do you feel about the Sandy Alderson jokes? Um, Look, the product on the field is what pays the bills. That's how he's going to be evaluated. That's how he should be evaluated. Um, I know the New York media, Adam Rubin in particular, isn't thrilled with his availability. And I don't care about that either. I don't care if he's a good quote. I don't care if he goes out there every press conference or every you know official media spot and answers every beat writer question with i'm just here so i don't get fined i'm trying to keep it topical but realistically you know he's look mets twitter is mets twitter i'm not particularly concerned about hashtag mets twitter because they need something to whine about but this is you know, if it's a position that has been a position of need now for two seasons, I've done two versions of the jingle. I'm, I consider doing the jingle live to introduce this answer, so I don't know I have a good way to upload the audio clip. But I don't actually remember the lyrics to it. I probably should have written them down somewhere. And rather than make a hash of it, you can just consider this the shortstop avenue audio segment for the show. There might be more. I don't know. But... This is the kind of thing that after he gets fired, assuming that happens, will live on in infamy, much in the way, you know, sort of the, you know, what do we remember about Omar after he got canned? It's, it's the press conference, you know, has lobby. That's what we remember. A lot of other stuff happened, but that's what we were, it's sort of the first sort of Omar memory about his reign and sort of like why he got fired, quote unquote. For Alderson, it's going to be, you know, we're going to remember the jokes, the what outfield, the 90 wins. That's not really a joke per se, but something that got leaked, certainly. We're going to remember the, you know, the the fan base has been waiting, waiting all winter for me to introduce a shortstop. The, even going back to the, uh, you know, that first spring training a few years ago after we got on Twitter, the jokes about, uh, whatever it was, paying in nickels or quarters. That's the kind of thing we'll remember. And that's, you know, that's... And if he... If the Mets get to the playoffs this year, hell, if the Mets win the World Series this year, no one's going to care. Alderson can make all the jokes he wants next winter. You know, it's... it's The proof is in the pudding when you're a GM. And we talk about the cult of GM on the show from time to time and how it's not entirely the best way to judge a organization or even a gm really you know you're gonna get credit and blame for things that are outside your control all the time that's sort of the simple story that we want to write you know both in the blogosphere and even you know beat writers do it all the time too so i'll cast aspersions in all directions but at the end of the day if he doesn't win those jokes fall flat (laughs) and he hasn't won and those jokes are starting to fall flat i like them because i don't care i'm not emotionally invested 
I mean, I'm emotionally invested in the team, but I'm not emo- emotionally invested in the off-season moves, sort of all the rigmarole, the technocratic analysis of the team, I guess is the best way to put it. But at the end of the day, if they win 80 games this year and the Wilpons decide to clean house, nobody has anybody to blame but themselves. We have another caller. Thank God. Hello, you're on Amazing Avenue Audio. Who are you and where are you from? Uh, My name's Christian and I'm from New York. Great, Christian. What do you got for us? Uh, Two questions. Um, A, do you also feel that Steven Matz is the greatest pitcher of this generation? And B, will he be up on the Mets apart from a September call-up? Is this the the Koufax cop from last year thing? (laughs) Call that trap. All right. So Steven Matz is the greatest pitcher of his generation. I think this refers back to the uh, Dan Worthen quote. From a few, from I think it was last spring, maybe where he like comped Stephen Matz to Sandy Koufax or something. Um, look, Stephen Matz has been in the news a lot lately, really ever since Wally Backman put him over, sort of, sort of put him ahead of of Noah Syndergaard. I don't want to put words in Wally's mouth, but said he was a you know maybe a better pitching prospect than. Noah Syndergaard at the QBC. And he's a really good pitching prospect look. I mean, there's... We talked about it a little bit last week on the show. We had an email about that. We have an email that I may end up getting to later in the show. This show about Stephen Matz. Is he the greatest pitcher of his generation? No. Can he be a really good number three starter as soon as the middle of this year? certainly by the beginning of 2016, I think so. And I went over, again, I went over the reasons why last week the stuff is the stuff. It's plus velocity from the left side. You can work both sides of the plate with it. You have the curveball, which was sort of his signature pitch when he got signed, has sort of gone through a mutation. They tried to do a slider at the beginning of 2013, scrapped that, went back to the curve, and hasn't quite gotten back to where you projected it when he was drafted in 2009. But the end of the year, sort of it starts towards the end of the year, you started to see that curve flash. The changeup's always been a pretty good offering given his level of professional experience. Can he be a little better than that? Maybe. I don't like to project that. I don't like to project it with Noah Syndergaard. I didn't really like to project it with, you know, Matt Harvey and Zach Wheeler. If you want to talk about OFP, overall future potential, yeah, you write those guys up as number two starters. You can write Matt's up as a number two starter. You're certainly going to write Syndergaard up as a number two starter. What's realistic? You know, can see when Matt's go full Jacob DeGrom? I think that was another conversation we had many weeks back on the show. Sure. You know, the stuff is there. The profile is always there. He's a high, he was a well-regarded draft pick at the time. You know, he was kind of, you know, a local interest second round pick because we spent our first round pick. I think I'm going to guess on Moises Alou maybe back then. And as for the second question uh, from Christian, when will you see him? That's a interesting query. If you're going to take a look at the Mets starting pitching depth chart going into 2015, I'm still, I mean, you have to look at it as it is. I think they're going to trade Dylan G, but you know, Mats isn't going to be any higher than the 
ninth pitcher on the depth chart. You figure as of right now, you have Wheelie Wheeler. Um, it's just freaking great. I got to slow down with this hot toddy. Wheeler, Harvey, Degrom, Nice, Cologne, G, Syndergaard, Montero. Probably Montero, Syndergaard. At least for the first month. So then you get to Steven Matz sort of in that eighth spot there. Are they going to be more willing if they if it, they get really desperate in their triaging? Will they call up Mazzoni? You know, Corey Mazzoni over Steven Matz? If they want to play around with Super 2 time? I don't know. They certainly haven't been shy about doing it before. Um, I think you will probably see him as a September call-up just because of the depth they have right now, unless something goes wrong injury-wise. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a reflection on manipulating service time or how they see him as a prospect. I just think you're going to see Syndergaard and Montero first, just because Syndergaard is closer. Montero has major league experience. If they need a spot start here and there, you know, why are you going to burn service time with Matt? It's a reasonable question. And look, Vegas, Matt still has some stuff to work on. Um, it's not something we talked about a ton last week, but you know, I've gotten reports and it's something eh, I don't want to say I saw it in Savannah because I thought he had decent arm side movement on his fastball, but you'll see reports that the fastball is a little straight, much like Syndergaard's. So that's something, you know, to keep an eye on in Vegas, you know, guys, he might get beat up a little bit. He's not a guy that's really gotten beat up at any, at any stop in his career. When, since he's been healthy, you know, 2012 in Kingsport, 2013 in Savannah, and 2014 last year in St. Lucie and Binghamton, dude, you know, if not dominated, been a very good pitcher at that level. So, you know, you you kind of want to see how he might deal with, I don't want to say failure, but a tougher pitching environment. You know, some starts where he's going to get shelled. It's just the, real, the realism. you got to be realistic with these guys in Vegas. They're going to get beat up. Even guys that have... Elite stuff. And I don't I don't think I put Matt's in that category necessarily. I think on a pure stuff level, Syndergaard stuff is better. And you saw what happened last year in Vegas. It's not an easy place to pitch. We've killed enough time now. Thank you, callers. To move on to another email. And it's from David. This is the uh, re-Dario Alvarez email. Hi, Jeff and friend. I promise I'm not writing to ask about... Dario Alvarez. Instead, I have a Mets history question. What will you guys estimate to be the worst Mets prospect busts of all time? To make it more interesting, we can break this up into two categories. One, the worst busts in view of their perceived value from the day they were drafted. And two, the worst busts in view of their perceived value from the time of promotion. To get the conversation started for category one, we're certainly talking about Steve Chilcott and Sean Abner, Phil Humber, Billy Bean, Jeff Goats, Ryan Jaronzik, who I actually don't even know. That's reaching way back. I know David has emailed us multiple times before, and he's a little bit older than I am. But uh, <laughs> And Terry Blocker, among others. Highly coveted players on draft day who never offered substantial or any major league value for Category 2. We're talking about players like Lastings Millage, Alex Escobar, Fernando Martinez, Paul Wilson, etc. Folks who performed at a high level in the minors but largely failed as major leaguers. And to be sure that we don't conclude the conversation on a low note, how about the biggest happy surprises? Again, in both categories one and two. So in category one, we're talking about really low draft picks who made good 
e.g. John Miller, Lenny Dykstra, Nolan Ryan. Caveat, the player must have signed with the Mets. So Roger Clemens, Raphael, it's a lot of rules. Roger Clemens, Raphael Palmero, and John Tudor don't count. And Category 2 would include players who turned out to be much better than, as major leaguers than we might have guessed from their minor league track record, e.g. recently Harvey and DeGrom. And finally, do you have any theories to why these prospects surprised us for good or ill, aside obviously from injuries? As always, love the podcast, give the good work, best, David. There's a lot to unpack here. So as I go into this question, which is going to take me a while, I'll remind you once again, you can call into the podcast and ask your own question at 347-850-8114. So I want to separate this out a little bit because guys like Chilcott and even... I guess going back to maybe like Sean Abner and Billy Bean, and I assume Goats and uh, Jaronzik, who I'm going to take a while to guess, along with Terry Blocker, a little before my time. Maybe my time is being alive, not even my time is doing prospect analysis. Scouting the draft is much more thorough now than it was, you know, 30 years ago, let alone you know, 50 years ago, like we'd be talking with Chilcott. And you're just not getting as many eyes on guys. You're not getting the same coverage nationally in general. And really, you're not seeing guys that are as well-developed as they are nowadays. You know, college baseball is much better. Even these prep picks, certainly the showcase circuit gives you a better look and more looks at them against better talent or more comparable talent. You know, you're seeing Steve Chilcott, he might have been facing, you know, what, 75 mile an hour fastballs a lot of the time. So that makes it more difficult to evaluate. Not to evaluate, but to say to say they were busts per se. I haven't actually done a study because that's not something I do. I'm not a uh, a spreadsheet guy, certainly. Um, but I be interested to see if you know the bust rate for top 20 picks is higher now or lower now than it was you know 20 years ago 30 years ago 40 years ago is i don't want to say scouts have improved or scouting's improved but it's just easier to see more guys and see them more times against a higher level of competition and you want to talk about busts and i'm going to look at your list here i'm going to throw phil humber out because he was a rice pitcher that got hurt and I'm trying to think back to when he got drafted. I think that was at the point in time where we were just starting to realize that drafting rice pitchers was a bad idea because they were throwing 160 pitches on Friday and closing on Sunday a lot of the time. But and if you want to throw like a first round pick in there and Humber, you know, Humber wasn't a bad prospect. He made that. I don't think he really even fits in category one, he fits for me more as a guy in sort of category two, because he was still, again, a very bad system at the time, but a guy that was a top three or four prospect in the system when he got called up. I mean, he made it to the majors in 2006 for the first time when he was 23. You know, after that season, Prospectus had him as the 26th best prospect in baseball. BA had him as the 73rd best prospect in baseball. And if you look at his career, yeah, he was the third overall pick. And he had one season where he threw over you know, 150 innings in the majors. 
He had that one good season with the White Sox, basically, but otherwise was a replacement level pitcher for his career, actually below replacement level. And, you know, how much is of that is credit to Don Cooper, you know, longtime White Sox pitching coach who works miracles with guys like that on a regular basis. I don't know. You know, number two, that category two is something I'm going to be a little more familiar with. You know, Paul Wilson, certainly another injury case. Alex Escobar, another injury case. Millinge, I wrote about extensively on the site. I did a prospect graveyard for him a few years ago. And Millinge was a guy maybe we should have seen it coming. He sort of, and I took an email already about Jared King. And Millage is kind of the high-end version of that profile. He's your high-end tweener. Where, again, wasn't going to be quite enough glove for center. Was the power going to be there? He was one of those guys that had age relative to league going for him for a lot of his career. I think those guys tend to get overrated at times. You know, Fernando Martinez fits in that category, though not as neatly because he also has sort of the injury issues as well. But Millage, I remember there's a lot made when he was at Norfolk. I'll look up the year. Um, but Norfolk at the time was such a bad offensive environment that the minor league equivalencies you saw, which aren't, as I've said before in the podcast, not my favorite thing. But at the time, I thought they were still really neat because this was like 2006. Oh, God, that was like nine years ago. Um, <laughs> But Millage's numbers in Norfolk in 2006, he had 277, 388, 440. You know, seven home runs and 367 plate appearances. Stole, stole 13 out of 23 bases. Not so great. Uh, 43 walks and 67 strikeouts. That's a little bit better. Those are nice ratios. You know, for a guy, you think the power potential is there. You know, this is a 21-year-old in AAA. Nothing to sneeze at. But the major league equivalencies were so wonky, he actually would have projected to put up better numbers than that in the majors because Norfolk, or at least in Shea Stadium, because the run environment in Norfolk was so low, was such a strong pitcher's park. So if you look at things like that, yeah, I, I'm not going to say Millage was a disappointment because he was, certainly. You want to call him a bust? I'm fine with that. Um, a guy that always sort of sticks out to me is uh, Mike Pelfrey, another guy I wrote about sort of in the Mets Prospect Graveyard series I did a few years back. Um, in Pelf, you know, I think he fits probably more into Category 1 because this is a guy that people thought were going to go 1-1, and he dropped because of the Boris client. Of course, very famously, the Mets had a uh, pre-draft deal with Jay Bruce, that was contingent on Pelfrey not being available in that spot. He was, they signed him and uh, the rest is history. Certainly well known history to anyone listening to this show, I would assume. But you know, it's, you look at the pre-draft reports. It's not like it's unusual for a guy to come out of a big college program dominating with only his fastball. He certainly wouldn't be the first. You know, Matt Harvey. If you go back to the 2010 Amazing Avenue draft thread, which I always recommend doing about once a year, it's always fun to look back and see the reactions to the Mets drafting Matt Harvey on the site. I thankfully, I 
had thought for years that I'd, I'd said something kind of stupid in there, but I had not. Though I was on the record before the draft is wanting Yasmani Grandal. You win some, you lose some. But those guys, you know, you would think they would have developed a curveball or a slider or something, some sort of breaking ball at some point. You know, he, uh, Pelfi developed a split change, which worked for a little bit. And if he had just had a breaking ball to go with it, he could have been a more successful major league pitcher. That would have been nice. I, and, and look, he wasn't awful. He certainly had some good seasons. He ate some innings. You know, he was sort of a number four. that would give you 180 to 200 innings a year. That has its value. Now he was worth, let's see, baseball reference has him as six wins over about 900 innings. So I can do math. That's like, yeah, that's like a number four star, a little less than a little below league average. Gives you innings. You know, he had a, he had a weird career where he was either average to a tick above or replacement level based on how many balls were finding holes and how many balls were going over the fence. But I don't think his true talent level really changed at any point in time in his Mets career. You look at the numbers on their face. He threw 896 innings for the Mets with a run average per nine of 4.65. You'd expect a Mets pitcher pitching in those parks against those opponents in those years in front of those defenses to put up a run average a 4.57, which is crazy because that was not that long ago, and now it's like almost a full run lower than that. <laughs> Offense has gone away. But yeah, you know, he's basically a league average starter. So I hesitate a little bit, I guess, to call him a bust. But I think he was probably disappointing based on what he did uh, in his minor league career and what he, you saw from him coming out of the draft. You know, was he rushed? That's a separate issue and something I get into in that piece, which I encourage you to go back and read. All right, we've made it. We're at the halfway point in the show. Again, you can call in at 347-850-8114, and I encourage you to do so because I'm running out of hot toddy, and I always forget when I do these shows solo. I don't know how, like, Francesa does it. I mean, obviously, he's drinking Diet Coke through the entire show, as we all know. I get parched very quickly. I'm going to take a sip of my hot toddy. Ah, it's nice. I'll give you my hot toddy recipe before we go into the uh, last email. Maybe wrap up this. I don't want to call it an unmitigated disaster. I think we all learned some things. I know how to use the interface now, which might be useful for the future. I could do it for opening day or draft day. I have some options. That's always a plus. I can figure out a way... My next step is figure out a way to have a co-host on the entire time. There's a host call-in number here that I maybe could have used. I mean, other people do this. I know other Mets websites, Mets blogs, do this with multiple hosts on a regular basis. I just haven't bothered to learn because I like to be able to control things and you know see my levels on my microphone, put in the shortstop avenue audio jingle as appropriate. But that's nothing that's happening this week. I don't feel bad because I have nothing to talk about. We already covered the shortstop joke, and they still haven't traded Dylan G. And we're like three weeks away from pitchers and catchers. 
I remember to plug the ARG before the end of the show. Before we head to our last email, I'll give my hot toddy recipe. It's a good drink. It's still going to be cold for another month or so. So the key to the hot toddy is don't use too much hot water. People usually tell you, you know, two ounces of bourbon, ounce of lemon, ounce of honey. Fill with hot water. Don't fill with hot water. You want basically to double the volume in the mug. So if you're doing four ounces of other stuff, I usually just do a generous squeeze of lemon, which I think technically speaking is closer to like a half or three quarters of an ounce. I don't like too much citrus. I will also encourage you to make honey syrup. It's very easy. Instead of just honey doesn't mix well. So if you just combine uh, honey with water and a two to one honey to water ratio in a saucepan and just stir it, don't let it boil, put it in Tupperware. It keeps forever. And just use that. It mixes a little better. So use an ounce of that. Two ounces of good bourbon. I am down to only four roses single barrel in my house, which is a waste of four roses single barrel. It's never a waste. It's just not something I use for cocktails usually. But I had to made do, make do. I decided to put my liquor money this week to, to towards uh, Pernod so I can make rattlesnakes and Sazeracs instead of uh, just picking up another handle of small batch, which was bad by me. It was bad planning. I thought I had more bourbon than I did. But two ounces of bourbon, one ounce honey syrup, big squeeze of lemon, two and a half to three ounces of hot water. Boom, you're done. Stir, put it in a mug. It's good if you're sick. It's just good generally. Even if it's essentially just, you know, a watered-down gold rush, basically. Before we do our last email, we'll do housekeeping. That seems like a thing we should do. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 101, Snow Day Live. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast. By the way, while I'm doing housekeeping, you have a chance, if you're listening live, you have a chance to call in. 347 850-8114. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at amazingavenue.com. Follow us on Twitter at Amazing Avenue. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue fans. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio. You can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. Also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro as I, I was going to look for new iTunes reviews, but I managed to Type instead, that's how this day is going. Really how this podcast is going. But we're all learning things, that's good. You can email a podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And I'm down to our final email. And it is, oh, wait, we got, people are now, look, people are now emailing the show. To let us uh, to emailing questions, seeing that we're doing a live call-in show instead of just calling in. That's where we are. So now I have two emails to get through. We'll get through Carlton's, but the one I had queued up. 
Hey, y'all. This is in reference to our uh, Matt Syndergaard conversation last week. Hey, y'all. Glad you're throwing around some real gut-level scouting when it comes to Matt's. Personally, I've never trusted lefties. Learned that from the Clinton years. Hashtag no politics. But what struck me was that you're high on Matt's because he wants it. I've long been lambasted for that approach to giving players an eval from the gut rather than the brain. But I think there's something to it. For example, wanting it is the difference between hibernation duda and bear attack zone duda. That's 100% more power and 200% more lumberjack. It does look like a lumberjack, certainly. Wanting it is Travis Donuts. I think this is a thing. I don't know if this is a thing or if this is just everyone's auto-correcting Darno to Donuts. I approve either way. Pre-demotion versus post-demotion. Donuts looked like a silver spoon California in the, f- the first pass- part of 2014. It looked like a damn soldier of fortune in the second part. Point is, these dudes didn't eat a bunch of horse meat and magically get bitter, bigger and badder. A tiny switch went off, and they realized they weren't put on this planet to abide. They were put here to lumberjack. My question, I guess, is why don't people take this into account more often when scouting? Usually it's all a bunch of math, curiously detailed descriptions of a fellow's body, and a bunch of grades. Sincerely yours, Carlton. So there's a couple things going on here. Well, there's a lot of things going on in this email. I do want to talk about scouting reports as a thing. Um, you have to keep in mind, what I do, you can call it scouting if you want, although I say I'm not a scout. But when you're sitting behind home plate, and you're a professional scout, you have to cover... If you're covering a team, say you have I – mean, every team does it a little bit differently. But if you're covering five teams that year, so you're sitting on one, you're in New Britain, and you're a scout for the Nationals, and you're covering the, – the Twins are one of your teams. You cover all the Twins affiliates from top to bottom. That's how some teams do it. You have to write up in the course of a four-game series in New Britain you know, against Harrisburg or whatever. You're writing up – 20 guys who you might see for a 10, 12 at bats, or maybe an inning for some relievers, five innings for a starter, you get one look. You've just got to, and you got to put a projection on this guy. So you need to keep it simple because your cross checker, your area guy, your boss is going to be reading these and wants. Simple information you can translate immediately. So, yeah, you're putting grades on and you're putting a projection on. Because, you know, 75, 90% of these guys you're writing up as org soldiers, you know, grade four below guys. But they need that information. They need to be able to tell quickly if they need to pay more attention to this player or not. You know, first of all, they're looking for, you know, follow, I guess, follow at the amateur level, should acquire at the professional level and then going from there. If they don't, if they don't, if they they see, you know, or guy, they're not worried about this. He should acquire, they'll go a little different, a little deeper. And they need to see uh, information. Okay. Why are we acquiring that? Where are the, what are the standout tools and the body type thing? And I know I I don't want to get into like the up and in uh, you're off to a bad start. Carlton email. (laughs) That's very famous. But when it comes to sort of like body type things is, you know, we make fun of, comps all the times but they really just want to know what the guy looks like <laughs> like they want to be able to picture this player in their head that is what the scouting director is like what is who is this guy so that's why it's you know it's it's detailed reports of what they look like because that's information you know a, a guy that looks like Corey vaughn has a very different profile from a guy that looks like kyle johnson even though they're both outfielders, they're both in double A, 
They're both a little bit older for the level. So you need to be able to picture what their profile looks like in their head. And you get the, the description of them. You get the grades. You get a comp maybe. And you start to get an idea of what this guy is without having seen him. And that's valuable. Now, as for like the gut level stuff, I think, you know, we the scouts versus stats thing is a misdirection in a lot of cases. You know, organizations use both. You know, even the Mets, you know, Paul DePodesta comes from a scouting background. JP Ricciardi comes from a scouting background. Tommy Tannis comes from a scouting background. You know, these guys, while they are certainly familiar with sabermetric principles, when it comes to evaluating on the amateur and on the minor league professional side, these are not things they are are leaning on heavily, certainly. Uh, but yeah, it, sometimes it comes down to, you know, we call it makeup. And you know, I, I called him, you know, I called Steve Matz a motherfucker last week, and I don't regret it. Um, I think that gets overplayed at the major league level to a certain extent. You don't get to the majors without being a little bit of a motherfucker. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, I'm sorry. It's like you have to perform at every level, whether it's, you know, clutch or gut feeling. These guys, again, I said some people are going to coast, but even Duda, like, his profile hasn't changed a ton from his sort of not particularly impressive 2013. You know, he cut his walks, he cut his strikeouts, the ISO went up a little bit, but he's not doing much more on contact. Is he attacking the zone more? Was Lamar Johnson responsible? I don't know. That stuff's always sort of been in his profile. Maybe it's just something as simple as he knew he was the guy now, or it's just he had three seasons worth of major league reps under his belt and he made adjustments. I don't know. In, in Darno, it's something we'll never probably completely parse out because the sample sizes are so small. But yeah, you know, there's certain things I will look for that have nothing to do with stats. And I, I, like, I honestly couldn't tell you for the most part what players did when I saw them. You know, I remember Juan Lagares. I saw him a bunch in 2012. was like, I only remember because he like never got a hit when I saw him. He went something like two for, I actually went back and looked it up. I think last year he went like two for 26 when I saw him. And I remember that because it was just so memorably bad when I sat on him. So you'll remember that maybe, but even that didn't really affect, I mean, it probably leaked in there somewhere, but it didn't really affect how I evaluated the player. For the most part, I, I I've seen guys absolutely shove. Matt Bowman, when I saw him last year, pitched great. Double-digit strikeouts, carved up the New Britain lineup, never really sweated out anything. Didn't affect my write-up because double-A performance isn't the goal here. It's what's this guy going to be able to do at the major league level? At the risk of angering Samba, the Society for the Advancement of Matt Bowman Appreciation. Um, you know, I didn't see much that was going to play at the major league level from Bowman that year. I've seen Zach Wheeler get absolutely shelled twice in double A for Binghamton. I mean, just lit up. Probably the two worst starts he had in double A. I wrote him up as a high three, low two. 
because the stuff was there. You, you're looking for it's just a different game. And Carlton, I think scouts are doing that. That's what they do. I prefer, as I like to say, stealing this again from Jason Parks and Kevin Goldstein. Good production is always preferable to bad production at the minor league level. But there's certainly more to it than that. And yeah, sometimes you're absolutely right. A switch just flips, which is what makes the the game, quote unquote, so difficult. You don't know if or when it's going to switch. Because like the switch goes off for Noah Syndergaard, if there's a switch, goes off in 2015. Look out that will be ugly for everyone playing the Mets is it going to happen I don't know so we're down on to our last email once again you've got 13 minutes left I don't know if this thing actually cuts off in 13 minutes because we're we're learning together but you have 13 minutes to call in the number is 347-850-8114 you can chat with me on Amazing Avenue Audio episode 101. At least we're clearing out our email inbox, which is always a plus. But our final as of right now email is from Ian. Hey, podcast, since you're doing a live call-in thing, maybe you can take a live email. Stuck at work in California, so can't call in. You're not snowed in. You are not enjoying the snow day that we are. Not in a blizzard, which is nice, but wanted to hear your thoughts on our bullpen. Does it make sense to put Montero or Mats in there? Why does it feel like something is missing in the pen? Is it sort of like every season when it comes to every team in their bullpen where you have a lot of guys with potential and then just hope some of them pitch well and don't blow too many games for you? It's usually the latter, Ian. If you have the time, since it seems like you do, thanks. Break down the potential of each guy for me. I sort of see the both good and bad in all of them. And that's why they're relievers, Ian. I don't know if you mean good or bad, Justin, uh, Matt's and Montero in that role are good and bad in the projected opening day bullpen. Of course, we will do a full bullpen preview on the show as we get closer to opening day. Usually not the most exciting thing in the world, so we keep it towards the end of spring training. So you have a couple months to recover from this pre-bullpen preview preview. So, I mean, there are the guys we know are going to be there. You know, from the right-hand side, Henry Mejia, Vic Black, Jair Familia, and Carlos Torres. And we know the the good and the bad there, I think, from each of them. You know, Familia, we've seen him absolutely dominate. We've also seen him not be able to have any feel for his breaking ball, not be able to throw strikes, not be able to field his position, not be able to hold runners on, and he struggles with lefties. We've seen Henry Mejia never quite be able to stay healthy. When he is healthy, he's a legitimate four-pitch closer. Maybe the first since like Jeff Montgomery that could be used as a multi-inning fireman. You're sort of the goose gossage role. Could pitch an eighth and a ninth. They're not going to do that. I think with, you know, Familia and even Torres really capable of closing, if you want to send Mejia longer and you need a closer the next day and it's something they should consider. I at least still consider a Henry Mejia Dylan G piggyback, but we know how far I got with that idea. You know, Carlos Torres, very versatile, you know, three pitch guy, fastball cutter slider can spot start for you. Can be a long man, can be a situational righty guy, can just be a standard setup guy. 
the bad there, Terry Collins is absolutely determined to make his elbow explode. And Vic Black, I mean, 70-grade fastball, nasty breaking ball, no idea where it's going a lot of the time. I'm leaving out Bobby Parnell because he's not going to be ready for opening day. People keep talking like he's going to be ready for opening day. You don't rush back a guy less than a year after Tommy John surgery. You'll see him in like May or June. It's fine. Probably June. So there'll be a there'll be a right-handed spot, and you're assuming a standard 12-man bullpen or 12-man pitching staff, seven-man bullpen. There'll be another spot in there for, uh, you know, whether it's Rafael Montero just to keep him around for sort of roster management purposes or as another long man or some veteran non-roster invitee. I don't know. On the left side, you have Josh Edgen and somebody. Your guess is as good as mine. I've heard Darren Gorski bandied about, which is, which makes me happy. I don't know how well that'll work. But again, I think as I've said on the show, the profile is not that different from Sean Gilmartin. So Gilmartin, Gorski, Scott Rice kicking about, Jack Leathersitch, um, Edgen. You just, you know, the stuff is good from the left side. It's a plus fastball from the left side. It's a workable slider. He had a very good 2014 in a small sample. You just need to see him do it again because you don't know even beyond usual reliever variants. And the second lefty, I I don't know, and I really don't. I don't think they need a second lefty. I don't think they need a 12th pitcher, but this is the era we live in. Uh, I think you could definitely see Montero there. They might use Montero as a fifth starter to push Harvey's debut back and then move Montero into the pen for a little bit just to keep him there. I know this is all contingent on them trading Dylan G or you could see Dylan G in the bullpen. I don't think you'll see Dylan G in the bullpen. At least certainly not for long. At worst, I see it as an Ike Davis type situation where he gets dealt for less than an ideal return. Um, You know, April 23rd or something while I'm sitting behind home plate for a game in New Britain, which would have one like Davis last year. So those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And we're just about ready to wrap things up. Special live edition. Amazing Avenue Audio, which I learned. So I'm, I'm glad I did this. I wish there had been more phone calls, but You can only work with what is available to you. I get to drink a hot toddy. I talk about Mets prospects and fringy Mets prospects at that, which is always a plus for me. And we'll be back next week. We're getting dangerously close. Oh, I was supposed to plug the ARG. I will plug the ARG again. If you want to see me fumbling over questions live in person, you can do it at the Ginger Man on East 36 in Manhattan on February 7th at 6 p.m. for the Amazing Avenue Audio Regional Gathering here. I will not be the only person there. I will probably bug Greg and Chris, who both live in... Man, Chris is in the Bronx, technically, but whatever. Still closer to Manhattan than I am, certainly. To show up, there'll be other authors, maybe even Eric Simon. A plethora of commenters, special guests. I don't know. 
it'll be exciting. It's always a fun time at the ARG. So I encourage you to come on over to the Ginger Man next a week from Saturday to be more specific. I hope to see you there. And I hope to hear you listening to me. That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, we're going to finish with a flourish on episode 101 of Amazing Avenue Audio.